Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. you are worshiping with us this morning. And to all of you who are online, thanks for tuning in to watch. As you are coming in the doors this morning, you should have been provided with a brand new <coughs> communication device. This is the Grace Church folder. And no, we did not spell folder wrong. We want to purposely call it folder. We just think it's kind of fun. But this is the Grace Church folder. And inside the folder, you're going to find all kinds of great information. We've got general church stuff. But what I really like about the folder is the insert, which is why we call it a folder, because you put things in them. And it has a whole church calendar on the back for the month of February. So if you're wondering what's going on at Grace Church, you can see everything happening here in the month of February on the back. And then we also have highlighted uh, opportunities for you to join groups or other ministries here at Grace. So feel free to use the folder any way you wish. The most important way I think we can use it is on the very back, we have a place for you to take sermon notes. So if you are a note taker, if the Holy Spirit inspires your mind and your heart today in any way, Jot that down, take it with you, put it in your Bible, put it on a shelf, put it in a, wherever you got to put it to remind yourself of the things that God has taught you while we're worshiping together. So take note of the Grace Church folder. It's a lot of fun. Second thing I'd like to share with you this morning is uh, we have a brand new official mug of the Grace Church Coffee Club. Now, you may or may not be a coffee drinker, but I am a coffee drinker. The world goes round because coffee is a real thing that makes people happy, and it makes me happy. And so if you would like to go ahead and purchase yourself a Grace Church mug, you can. They're in the cafe. Here's what's cool about this mug. Every time you bring it to Grace Church, unlimited free drip coffee inside of this mug, which is really helpful on a Sunday morning that it snows and your kids are being the worst, you know, and they're chatting out of the house is tough. That's when you come and you need this mug to make sure that you feel like Jesus loves you, okay? Grab one of these. It's worth it. Now, uh, let's get on to something more serious. Let's worship God through his word. And if you have a Bible or Bible app with you, you can open up to Genesis chapter 4, as well as Revelation chapter 5. We're looking at the first part of the Bible, and we're also looking at the last part of the Bible, because we are going to be entering into a new series called True Worship, and I believe that starting here and ending there is going to help us understand something about the worthiness of God when it comes to his worthiness of being worshipped. Now, I don't carry cash anymore. I don't know how many of you carry cash on you. Uh, it's probably a, a shrinking number in our society. But I used to have in my wallet $1 notes, $20 notes, and $100 notes. And I got curious. I was like, how much does it actually cost to manufacture a note, right? And so if you are unaware, a $1 note costs 6.2 cents to manufacture. And a $100 note, because of all the fancy security measures, 14.2 cents to manufacture. However, both of these notes carry a very different worth, don't they? Yes, they're only 6 cents and 14 cents to manufacture, but the worth of those notes is different based on the entity that ascribes value to the note. In this case, it's the federal government uh, or the Federal Reserve, right? And we all collectively agree that even though this 6 cent and this 14-cent note are so close in manufacturing cost, the worth of those notes or the value of those notes is dramatically different. One note, the $100 note, has 100 times more buying power 
than the $1 note. Uh, and we all happily believe uh, this system that they tell us to believe in. And this is what tells me that the majority of Americans still trust the United States government, even if they're unhappy with the way things are currently being run in America, because you still believe, you still have faith in the United States government to honor the worth that they've ascribed to those notes. You have faith in the system of law and order that allows and regulates transactions in the United States. You have faith in banks and governing institutions that keep banking laws in place. You have faith that the FDIC will insure your checking account for up to $250,000 in case something were to go wrong. Because you trust the United States government's laws and regulation when it comes to what they uh, would denote as a monetary value of a $1 or a $100 note. You have faith in their system. And because of your faith and their ability to uphold the laws, you believe that these notes are worth the value they ascribe to it. Uh, and as a result, uh, whether you believe this or not, we all are going to be doing this here shortly. Because you have faith in the United States government, you are all going to be very happy to pay your taxes this April, right? Oh, everybody laughs. Why do you laugh when we talk about paying tax? Does not, people, do people not like paying taxes? Is that a thing people don't like? I like paying taxes because I know the value that I get from paying the taxes. I give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But yes, it is notably more difficult when you have less faith in the governing institution that's requiring you or asking for you to give them your resources. The less faith you have in a government entity, the harder it is particularly pay taxes or want to give those things away. You may be very familiar with a story of uh, our founding fathers. We call them patriots. The British call them traitors, uh, who decided one day they didn't want to pay taxes on their tea, and therefore they threw all their tea over the boat, and we have the Boston Tea Party, and hence the American Revolution, all because people lost faith in the organization governing them, and therefore they felt like the organization governing them could not ascribe worth to things around them. And now you have the American Revolution. It was an interesting process. But people ascribe actual uh, worth to things based on the faith they have in the organization around them to in ensure its worth. As we start our new series today, True Worship, I want us to examine this one question. What makes God worthy of your worship? What makes God worthy of your worship? Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon called In Spirit and in Truth. And I realized that in preaching that message, I never gave a definition of worship. So this morning, I want to give you a definition of worship that I think will serve us well as we go into the series called True Worship. And here's a two-part definition. First, worship is this. Worship is an attitude of the heart. Okay? Worship is an attitude of the heart. And the second aspect is that it therefore then has actions of service. Right? When I talked about the reality of what we believe, what we hold dearly to, influences all of our behaviors. So worship is the idea of this, this attitude of our heart towards God and the acts of service that come out of that attitude that we have towards God. So whether or not we worship him through verbally singing like we just were, or we worship him through giving an offering or a tithe, or we worship him through loving one another in some kind of sacrificial way, the reality is worship begins with this attitude of the heart and the overflow of that is then our acts of service and our actions. So worship is the attitude of the heart and and the actions of service that follow that. Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul even affirms this to maybe the ultimate degree 
When he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in light of this, in light of God's mercy for you, offer your body as a living sacrifice. The instruction there is to give everything of who you are, no matter what it is, over into the service of God the Father, because he's worthy. But the only reason we would do that is if we actually thought he was worthy. And in order for you to find someone worthy, you have to have faith in their power so that you would find them worthy. So the real question is, is not is God worthy, but do you have faith that God's claim to his worth is legitimate? Do you have faith in God's power to do what he says he's going to do, to uphold the standards of his law, to bring about all of creation under his rule? Do you really believe that? Because if you have faith in his power and his ability and his love and his care, then our natural response would be to be one of worship, similar to our response with taxes. If you believe in the system, you're going to pay into the system. If you believe in God's power, you're going to live a life that shows that belief. So let's talk about faith. I want to talk about how the author of Hebrews addresses faith first. It's Hebrews 11 says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and it's assurance about what we do not see. So, friends, at Grace Church, when we talk about worshiping God, it's because we hold to some deeply uh, uh, important beliefs. We believe that God is worthy of our love and our acts of service because, ready for this? He has redeemed our soul from eternal damnation and certain death. That through his love and through his son Jesus and through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his death and then his burial and his resurrection, proving he was God over life and death, because of that act right there, that power, that display of power and love for us, we believe that God is worthy. So we have faith in God's power and in that resurrection power, and now God is therefore worthy of all of our worship. So every act of worship, whether you understand this or as we grow in this reality, every act of worship is actually an act of faith because the two are intricately linked. You would not worship if you did not have faith in the one that you're worshiping. So as you worship, as you sing songs, as you give offerings, as you abide by the, the decrees of God's word, as you submit your life to him, all of those acts of faith are also acts of worship. That's why I really like what the author of Hebrews says in 11.6. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And every act of faith is also an act of worship. So this series is really designed to increase our faith in the worthiness of God to receive our worship so that everything we do is done with full faith it is also now true worship. So with that in mind, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to examine the very first act of worship between people towards God the Father. In Genesis chapter 4, you've probably heard the story. It's the story of Cain and Abel. And one day, Cain decides that he's going to bring an offering to the Lord, and he convinces his brother Abel to do the same thing. And I would like to read from you now uh, from Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. It says this, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. I really uh, love how the author of Hebrews says this. He says, it came about in the course of time. 
that all of a sudden Cain decided that God was worthy of some kind of offering. Here's what I know is true about humanity. It's true about you. It's true about me. It's true about everybody in the world. If you spend any kind of time with God, eventually you come to the conclusion that he's worthy of worship. It may not be uh, the uh, all-life worship that you come to assume, but at some point in time as you interact with God, the assumption is and the knowledge is God's worthy of some kind of worship. And that's what happens here. Cain recognizes God's worthiness of whatever kind of worship he's going to bring. Now, what we don't know is we don't know if Adam ever gave an offering to God. We never see that in Scripture. We don't know if Eve ever did that. We don't see any instruction from God to Cain or Abel about how to worship him. It's simply the fact that Cain, as he got to know God, recognized that God was worthy of worship. And so he and his brother decide to bring some offerings over to the Lord. Cain brings fruits and grains, uh, and his brother Abel brings the firstling of his flock. And as you read the story, right away you learn something about God. You learn something about God's preference in worship. Because immediately God rejects Cain's offering and he accepts Abel's offering, which tells me this about God. There is worship that God will accept and there is worship that God will reject. That's what we know is true about God. There is a type of worship that he honors and values and gives favor to, and there's other worship that he finds to be unvaluable and unfavorable. But even in that unfavorable worship, he addresses Cain and says, Cain, Cain, hang on, you can still bring me true worship if you just do what is right. And so let's take a look at that a little bit, because Cain did bring a grain offering, but I want us to look at Leviticus chapter 2, because there are multiple offerings in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 2, we see the grain offering. And if we read the grain offering principles in Leviticus chapter 2, and you compare that to what Cain did in Genesis chapter 4, you come to an understanding of why God rejected Cain's offering in the first place. So let me read to you Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. I want you to hear that. If anyone's going to bring a grain offering to the Lord, his offering should be of fine flour. Now when you look then in Genesis chapter 4 and see what Cain brought, it's implied that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, which would have been a grain offering, but the implication is here, it was of no high quality. It was simply a gift. It was just what he had laying around. When you compare that with Abel, who brought, something God, who brought God something of great quality. Here's what we learn about Cain in that story. Cain recognized that God was worthy of worship. We know that. He's the one who instituted bringing God an offering. We also know something about Cain. Cain didn't think that God was worthy of his best worship. God was worthy of something, but God was not worthy of everything. He was just uh, what I would call a tipper. You guys know tippers, right? People who give God just a little bit. It's just a little bit, because God is clearly worth something, but he's not worth everything. We acknowledge God's worthiness of our worship, but he really can't have it all. He can just have some. I'm grateful for the salvation I get through Jesus, and therefore I'm going to give God some of my life. I'll give God some praise. I'll give God some of my talents. I'll give him a little bit here, a little bit there. And tippers are people who live their life with this transactional relationship with God, where if God is worth more to me today, I'll give God a little bit more of myself today. It's a tipper mentality. A lot of believers, including myself, 
knowingly and unknowingly slip in and out of our worship of God in this place based on our perceived worth of God's value in our life. That's, that's not okay. God says it's not okay. God sets the value of his worship. He doesn't want whatever it is you choose to bring. He didn't just come for a little bit of you. He came for all of you. If he gave you all of himself through Christ, then the only implication is all of your love in return. It can't just be a small bit. And when we give a small bit, I think God looks at that and says, okay, all right. My favor is not necessarily on that because it's not worthy of what I've done for you. It's not worthy of who I am. Friends, I know it's difficult to think that sometimes our worship is not worthy of God because it puts us in a position to think about ourselves in terms of our attitudes and our behaviors. But the reality is giving lip service to God is really no form of worship at all. Coming and singing and having your heart not there is really no form of worship. Giving and offering every single week because you felt like you're supposed to, or like, you know, whatever reason you're raised that way and, and you give a gift, is no form of worship at all unless it matches the love in your heart. If the love in your heart doesn't match the action, then we're not actually worshiping God in that space. And that's what we see about Abel. Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. Abel on his part... He brought the firstlings of his flock, and he brought their fat portions. Now, when you read this context, what we're learning is this. Abel brought the best of what he had. Abel believed, Abel had faith that God was worthy of the absolute best that he could give God the Father. Now, he could have given God anything. Right? Cain gave God whatever he wanted to give. Uh, he could have given God anything. There's no instructions. And this is, this is crazy. There's no instructions here. But Cain, or but Abel knew that God was worthy of the best that he had to offer. And that's what the author of Hebrews tells us in 11, Hebrews 11.4. 11, it says, by faith, this is really important, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, it was commended to him as righteousness. These two offerings had nothing to do with the calf, had nothing to do with the fat, had nothing to do with the grain. Had everything to do with the faith that the two men had in God's worthiness of receiving their acts of service. Is he worthy of some? Or is he worthy of all? And God sets his standard. God says, I'm worthy of all. So the question becomes, what makes God, what gives him the authority and the power and the ability to set his standard of worship? That's rather arrogant, wouldn't you think? I can't believe somebody would say, oh, I'm not going to take a little bit. I need to have all of you. What gives him the authority and the power to actually make that decree? And that's where we're going to look at Revelation chapter 5. Here's what's difficult with people. Okay? People have a really hard time with other people setting the standard of worth. We have a really hard time. And if you don't believe me, I want you to get out your phone and get on Facebook Marketplace. Okay? On Facebook Marketplace or at any given yard sale, this is the exact, uh, man, this is it, right? Like you go to one of these things and people set worth on one of their items. Here's this dresser. This dresser is worth $200. This dresser is 35 years old and half broken, but it's worth $200. And you've got to do all the work to fix it, by the way, but it's $200. And immediately, two things happen if you put anything on Facebook Marketplace. Within seconds, is this still available? Dot, dot, dot. Would you take less is the immediate 
response. Why? Because we assign value, right? We assign value, then somebody else assigns value, then we're debating and arguing over the value. And so when somebody else sets value and they say, this is what I'm worth, we say, eh, what makes it worth that? It's the natural position of the human heart to ask the question, why is it worth what you say it's worth? Why is God, why is God setting that his worship is worth all of you? What gives him the power to do that? I'm not sure that's fair. I want to have a say in that. Well, let's take a look at Revelation chapter 5, and we'll see what, God, what, what we actually learn uh, in that space, okay? Revelation chapter 5. Now, many people think of Revelation uh, as a book of end times prophecy. And yes, it is a book of end times prophecy. It is, the, it is called the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about his second coming, what's going to happen when he returns. And that is a perfectly good way to study the book of Revelation. However, what you need to understand is that the book of Revelation is not just a prophetic text. The book of Revelation is also a worship text. When you read Revelation and you walk through it, if you don't walk away from the book of Revelation in awe at the power and majesty and authority of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, then you have not read it with the right eyes. Because Revelation is a book designed to draw us into a space of enamoration of adoration, of, of, quite frankly, disbelief that God could do all the things that he's going to do, as well as a sense of justice to our soul as we yearn for him to do the things that he says he's going to do inside the book of Revelation. So Revelation is a book of worship, and every time I read it, I walk away worshiping. And nowhere is it more clear than Revelation chapter 5, as all of creation, all the angelic beings, and all of humanity worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want us to see in Revelation 5. It's not just worship of Jesus in Revelation 5, although it says a lot about Jesus. It's, it's worship of the triune God. It's worship of the Father, worship of the Son, and worship of the Holy Spirit. And fundamental to the Christian faith is that our God is three, but he's also one. Now, I know as we talk about the Trinity uh, and the triune nature of God, that we're about to spend 10 minutes on something that makes everyone's head scratch. Because talking about the Trinitarian reality of who God is, is quite frankly not comprehensible for the human mind. And I heard one uh, writer describe it this way. If you lived in a 2D world, two-dimensional world, and a three-dimensional object showed up, you'd have no way to explain it. You'd have no way of understanding it. There's no possible way to articulate the thing that you're looking at or the thing that is there. But it's 100% true. It's 100% three-dimensional. But you have no way of grasping it because your whole world is 2D. This is what happens with the, with the Trinity. Your whole world is what we understand as it is. And God, who is holy other, holy other, is quite frankly at times incomprehensible. And this is one of those facets of God as he enters into human creation that we just go, I don't get it. And that's totally okay. We're allowed to not comprehend the mystery of the Trinity. However, we can still teach about the foundation of the Trinity because the triune God is necessary for the creation of mankind, the redemption of mankind, and the empowering of all believers to live a life that glorifies God. The Trinity is necessary. Without the Trinity, there is no Christian. So we have to talk about the Trinity just a little bit trying to get some of the foundational principles of it, so that as we read Revelation 5, you can worship in a way that you were designed to worship. Let's, let's take a look. What we're going to see is this. God is three persons in one. 
and his unity and his distinct and through his unity and distinct persons, he controls the history of the universe, which is capstoned by the incarnation of God as Jesus through his death, his resurrection, and the redemption of the souls of all who would believe. And that's why Revelation 5, people glorify us. Let's read this together. If you have your Bible, you're going to get all of it. It's Revelations 1 through 14. I have uh, modified this and taken out some sentences for the sake of brevity, but it's still a rather lengthy piece. So as I read, you can read in your scripture or you can read along on on the screen and just hear the worship that's the foundation of this text. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. That's God the Father, by the way. That's the one on the throne. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I, John, wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. You see, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has triumphed. He has triumphed is very key language here. Okay, He has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying... Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, when you look at this in context and you take a 30,000-foot view, I want you to take a look at all three persons of the Godhead are present in this passage, and all three are being worshipped, all of creation. We have God the Father who is sitting on the throne. We have God the Son in the form of the Lamb who was slain, but who clearly triumphed. That word triumph means he triumphed over death. Therefore, he was a lamb who appeared as if he was slain. And then you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shows up in like the most unusual description. He shows up as the seven eyes and the seven horns of the lamb. But when you look at the passage, it's clear that the author of Revelation 5 says there's a distinct difference between the eyes and the horns as the Spirit of God, even though they're a part of the person of the Lamb that was slain. They are the same. It's not a crown that sits on the Lamb's head. It's his actual seven eyes, actual seven horns, and yet the author makes a distinction between the persons. 
The seven eyes and seven horns are the spirit of God. The lamb that was slain is the body, and they are still one, and they're there before God the Father. So there is a distinction here that, yes, they are all distinct persons, but they are unified, completely unified. Now, I'm going to show you a diagram that might help explain the Trinity, because it is a very difficult thing to comprehend, and some of you are visual learners, and I want to show you this diagram, okay? It's a diagram. It goes back many, 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 many theologians years ago. But here we go. We have the Father who is not the Son, the Son who is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit who is not the Father. They're not the same. However, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. How that works, I don't know. Nobody knows. We can't explain it. But what we do know are the implications of the unity of the Godhead. And the implications are that he has all power, authority, and dominion over all creation, all power, authority, and dominion over all death and life, and all power, authority, and dominion over your ability to follow after him and worship him. That's what we know. That's what we see here. The Holy Spirit being the empowering aspect, the Son being the salvation aspect, and God the Father being the one who initiated the grand plan in the first place. It has to work together, and if it doesn't work together, it doesn't work at all. And here's what we see about Scripture. All of Scripture points to the oneness of God. Every aspect of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, talks about God being one. Uh, most notably is in the, what we call the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. If you were a Jewish person, you would say this every morning and every night, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. This is something that Jewish people say in the morning and say at night. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's very important to know that God is one. Because he's not just the God of Israel, he's the God of all creation. So when they say that he is one, he's one over all. You go to Exodus chapter 20. What's the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Therefore that says I'm singular, I'm one, I'm over all. And yet, in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God refers to himself in the plural. It doesn't make any sense. Why God does It's weird. God says this, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Who's God talking to? He's talking to himself. But why is he talking to himself in the plural? Because he's three distinct persons. So let us make man in our image. Let us make him in our likeness. If you go to uh, the book of Isaiah, look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. We see another reference of God referring to himself in the plural. He says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. But what did God say? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Well, God doesn't need somebody to go represent all of heaven. Now, he doesn't need that. He's got to, he can send angels out to represent himself. Who's going to represent me? And me is us. Who's going to represent the one but three distinct persons? This is Godhead. And what does Isaiah say? Here I am, Lord, send me. I'll do it. I'll represent the Godhead. I can do it. A couple chapters later, we talk about the Messiah. It's a very familiar Christmas verse. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's one of the famous passages around Christmas. For unto us... A child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, here's these two words that indicate this is God. Ready? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, in Hebrew, the name Mighty God is El Gabor. Nobody, and I mean nobody, if you are a Jewish person, nobody is going to say El Gabor about themselves, Mighty God, because that's blasphemy to say that you're one with God. 
Yet here in Isaiah, we see the prophetic words that say that God himself is going to come down to earth as a child. So if he is mighty God, it has to be God. The words right after that, everlasting father, which are the words abiad, they're actually translated father of eternity. No person, if you were a Jewish person reading Isaiah 9, you would recognize immediately that only God himself is an everlasting entity. So clearly in Isaiah 9, the Messiah is going to be God himself. There's no, there's no way around it in the understanding of the text. The Messiah is God. And so here we have God now as an incarnate man, which is in our faith, what we say is, is Jesus. We see the fulfillment of this prophecy, the incarnation of God, in Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So now we have John. John's a Jew. You've got to remember that. John's Jewish, and he grew up Jewish. He knows all about Jewish law, all about Jewish tradition. He's a follower of Christ. And here we see John sitting in the presence of God, and here he sees God the Father. He sees the Lamb who was slain but triumphed, who is God, and we know the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. That's what John's thinking, that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. So we have God and God together with the Holy Spirits of God in the form of eyes and horns of God. So you have these, these three aspects all there at the throne, all being worshipped by all of creation. It's this bizarre, amazing experience for somebody to be specifically John himself. And Revelation 5 ends, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory and honor and praise forever. And here's why. Because the Father's on the throne and he wrote the scroll. The scroll is a double-sided thing, front and back. That scroll is sealed with seven seals. You learn that in the very first couple sentences. Now, I'm going to share with you my interpretation of what the scroll is, although there's many variations, but I personally use a hermeneutic that comes from Jesus himself. When Jesus tells his disciples, as you look through Scripture, he actually tells the Pharisees, he goes, you search Scriptures looking for everlasting life, but all the Scriptures point to me, Jesus. So me, as a reader of the Bible, as a follower of Jesus, I look to see Jesus in all of those Scriptures from the beginning to the end. And I believe that this interpretation of what the scroll is is the most accurate one because it points us to who Jesus is more fully. Right? So here's what's on that scroll. Front and back, it is God's comprehensive will for all of humanity. That's what's on the scroll. So I saw him on the throne with a scroll in his right hand. That scroll is God's comprehensive will from Genesis chapter 1 to the centuries beyond that we have no idea after Christ is ruling and reigning and he's already come back. It's the centuries beyond that. It's all of history, all written on the scroll, sealed seven times. Now, why do we think it's God's will? Because in Roman law, Roman culture, if you were a father and you wanted to pass on your inheritance to a son, you would write a will, a living will and testament, just like we do today. And you would seal it with seven seals. We know that we have many examples from Roman culture where a will was sealed with seven seals. Therefore, when I read the scroll, it's God's will. It's God's comprehensive will. And the only person who's able to receive a will and testament from their father is who? The son. And so here we have the son who was raised from the dead, who triumphed, and as a result brought many into the kingdom of God, including me, including you, through his triumph. And he is worthy now to fulfill God's testament for all of history. He takes it all in his hand, right there. That's powerful. God the Father gives his complete will and testament to God the Son. God the Son can then open the seals, read the rest of Revelation. That's Jesus opening the seals and all the things that happen as a result of God's justice being mediated against the world and throughout the world. Jesus is worthy. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the Root of David, and he is the Messiah. God the Father, he's existent. 
He's the only one with power over life and death, and he's the only one that can give, forgive sin. Becomes incarnate man through Jesus, who is God the Son, who lives a perfect life and who was slain because only death can remove sin in the world. That's just plain truth throughout Scripture. Sacrifice is necessary. And the Lamb, Jesus himself, as John aptly describes, John the Baptist describes when he sees Jesus the first time, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is it. He comes through. He lives his life. He sacrifices. He's raised from the dead. He triumphs, and he sits next to God the Father, recognizes that he is God. And then he's given. I love this image of Jesus. Jesus, who is the Lamb with the seven eyes and the seven horns, the Spirit of God being one, means that Jesus and God the Father, because it's the Spirit of God, they have all knowledge and all power over the universe. Why would I say that? Let me give you the allegory. Because, again, Revelation is a lot of allegory. When you read that the lamb had seven eyes and he had seven horns, first thing you understand about Jewish interpretation of Scripture, and I'm not going to get too deep into it, is this. Seven is the perfect number. I'm not going to go in any more into it than that, but seven is the perfect number. Second thing you need to understand is this about the allegory. Eyes represent knowledge. They all things. It's all omniscience. The omniscience of God. The seven spirits across the entire world. Every angle, wherever the wind goes, the Spirit of God goes throughout the entire world. So the seven spirits of God, or really the one spirit of God, represents the omniscience of God throughout the world. Then you have the seven horns. And what do horns represent? You ever been to uh, an Old Testament battle? You ever seen the Old Testament battle scenes? Where they get out the horn, right? It's a bad horn. But they do it. They blow the horn. When they blow the horn, it represents power and might. And so you have the seven horns representing God's power throughout the world as well. And instead of being a crown that's on the lamb's head, they're integrated into the lamb himself. And so here the resurrected lamb and God himself have all omniscience and all power throughout all authority and all the earth. This is this beautiful Trinitarian picture of the might, power, and glory of God the Father. And every single creature who sees the lamb and the father before the throne and the lamb with the eyes and the horns bows down in worship. You see, this is what makes God worthy. It's not just that he loves you. It's not that he just, you know, saved you. That's a big deal. It's that he's the only one capable of initiating this plan for all of creation to redeem it to himself, by himself, for his glory, because it pleases him to do so. So when we talk about God's worthiness of worship, you don't get to set the limit of what God is worth. He said it himself. But is our heart motivated? Do we have the right belief so that we live a life in service to God the Father as a result of the power he displays? Do we have faith that God is worthy of that kind of worship? Do we have it? I think some days we do. I think some days we don't. It's what it means to walk this world inside the flesh. Is you're always going to be battling with the flesh. But friends, you are one with God because the Holy Spirit has redeemed you and indwells you. You now have perfect unity with God the Father. Because of his work on the cross, you can now worship him perfectly because he has might and power and glory and is worthy of that kind of worship. Amen. I'm going to invite our worship team out. We're going to enter into a time of uh, an act of service, if you will, where we verbally praise God the Father through our worship. And these songs that we're going to listen to are designed to bring you into a space where you say the words that we see here in Scripture, but it gives you a chance to decide in your heart, is God worthy of you saying those words? 
If you really believe God's worthy of the words, you'll say them. You'll sing them. You'll celebrate them. But if God is not worthy for you today, it's because you have that tipper heart. And the tipper heart has not recognized the value of what you have just yet. And if you don't know the value, I want to invite you to experience the value for yourself by recognizing that Christ who lived and who died and redeemed you is here for you and will do a restorative work in your heart if you just reach out and ask. So let's pray together as we enter in this time of worship that God would enlighten our souls to the beauty of his worth and worship. God, thank you so much for how you love us. Thank you for how much, so much for how you reveal yourself to us. Thank you for the fact that you are a very complex being that I cannot get my mind around. Because, Lord, if I could understand you, I'm not sure you'd be God. But I recognize what you bring. And what you bring is a plan far beyond anything I could have ever, or ever thought of. But I'm the beneficiary, Lord, of your great will, of your great power, of your great love, and of your great justice. And so, Lord, as one who's been redeemed, would you let my soul sing? Would you let my heart sing? And would you let my life be filled with acts of service and acts of worship? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.